Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to the most wonderful place in the whole wide world, 1989 WCW. It's a time of great change and controversy. There's going to be a lot of bad blood this season with all the rivalries. WCW never did quite get out of the woods this year. Flair versus Steamboat was better than we could have imagined in our wildest dreams. And by the end of the season, we'll be saying welcome to New York for the Clash of the Champions. Welcome to 1989, Steve's version. Kyush, are you ready? I gotta tell you, everything about this is like a giant Christmas present to Steve. Watching you christen it 1989 Steve's version is literally one of the most perfect things that's ever happened on our podcast. And like, it's like when you like sit back on Christmas and you watch your kids unwrap their presents and you're like, you know what? Good for them. I'm so happy. Look how happy they are. I feel that way. We're doing something real special here. But also, this shit's interesting, man. What a weird ass year. It is. I don't know that there's ever been a more... Maybe 97 WWF or like 2000 WWF, but just a year more mired in backstage politics. Like, I feel like the iterations of the booking committees and the people getting fired here are just legendary. Like, people who didn't even watch this stuff can recite it because there have been so many podcasts and shoot interviews and books written about it. And that's really the thing, is that, like, we, we know all of the perspectives. We know what everyone had in mind. We know what everyone's plans were. We know why everyone thought it went wrong. What we basically have is this gigantic, chaotic mess with all of these cooks who have completely different ideas of where to go. And some people have power and some people don't have power, blah, 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 blah. And what we actually get is, like, the worst possible incarnation of all of those ideas. <laughs> Yeah, it just in some ways it demonstrates booking committees can't work, but also, you know, George Scott being the sole booker really didn't work either. Booking committees are fine as long as they're one person who eventually you have to feed the ideas through. Booking committees don't work if it's just a bunch of shit being thrown at a wall. And then, like, maybe this mid-card feud gets through, but it has nothing. It doesn't fit the same identity as the main event feud. Like, we're not constructing a cohesive thing here. So yeah, we'll get to Wrestle War in a little bit. But first, we've got a lot more than three stories to talk about this week. I'm going to lead off with an AEW lightning round because there are so many goddamn AEW stories. Yep. Ooh, Ric Flair showed up and has apparently signed a multi-year contract. This is Mark shit. I cannot believe Tony Khan hired Ric Flair just so he can say Ric Flair works for him. To be clear, he was planning on hiring him like a year ago when yeah. he brought in Andrade. He just couldn't because, hey, remember, Ric Flair's a fucking scumbag and it's yeah. a terrible idea to have him associated with your company. This is one of the first things I've seen AEW do that it feels like there's genuine backlash from their fan base. Because what is Ric Flair supposed to offer at this point? No like, idea. Let's say they're paying him like $1 per year and they're just bringing him in. Just imagine what positive thing you could possibly put on television that would involve him beyond like one angle where someone beats him up to piss off Sting. And even that's not that interesting. I don't want that. I just yeah. don't. It's just what. One more old guy clogging TV time up. 
But also, they're going to advertise his energy drink as the official oh. energy drink of AW. This is a worse deal than the one TNA did with Ric Flair to get him in the building. Yeah. This is like, we got to do this for him. Otherwise, we can't we can't land him. Okada wrestled a match on Dynamite. Fuck yeah. This is the time we live in, ladies and gentlemen. In a promotion that everyone bitches about all day online, we're watching Kazoo. Us included. We're watching Little Kazoo on fucking American free television. Oh, unfortunately, he broke Danielson's orbital bone, or maybe it was already. I think it was. I think Andrade broke it actually. The funniest thing is that like now there's this thing where like Okada injures everyone he wrestles yeah. with in AEW. I hope he's like cuts a promo where he's just like you weak American pussies. <laughs> oh, uh, Swerve broke into Hangman's house and kind of threatened his wife and young child. Them Why is there so many home invasion angles in wrestling? Did they hire whoever was writing for TNA? Because the only thing that like wrestling writers can imagine is getting cucked and home invaded <laughs> and maybe getting hit with a car. Yeah. I like uh, that Swerve is the only heel allowed to be genuinely villainous in the entire company. Even though everyone actually loves him. That's the thing is that he's so over. Oh, very casually. They announced they're having a pay-per-view on December 30th. It's going to be called world's end. It's uh, in long Island. I think. This is a good idea for two reasons. We, when we originally talked about that, like we talked about like what a good idea would be to just take the already like special dynamites, like the the winter is coming one, and just turn those into pay-per-views. And that's basically what this is. But they should have a pay-per-view every year in Long Island until MJF leaves the company. <laughs> Which, you know, might be next year. But like, it's just a good idea, especially if he's going to be champion. Like the... It's like having Bret Hart during the Hart Foundation stuff, where, like, this man can be a heel all year round, but in this town, he's God. Big Show is back. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, they hyped a big announcement that turned out to be tickets going on sale for All In a month from now. Well, they have to publicize that as much as possible, as far in advance as possible, because oh, okay. they're not fucking filling Wembley a second time. Oh, I think we're going to be calling in a bomb threat and moving it to the L.A. sports arena. This is a horrible idea, guys. Like, the first time always draws the best. They could even get super hot and still may not manage to do it again, because people have seen it already. And then, story number two. Inexplicably, we had an MJF versus Kenny Omega match on yes. Collision. What the kick fuck? Ass. The embarrassment of riches we're given weekly on free television <laughs> these days is fucking stupid. This was absolutely a pay-per-view main event, both in terms of its importance and the quality. In theory... When AEW was founded, it was founded on the idea of three matches happening. Kenny Omega versus Hangman Page, Hangman Page versus MJF, and Kenny Omega versus MJF. And this was one of those three matches on free free B-show TV. Yeah, on a Saturday night with under 500,000 people watching. This is like Hulk Hogan versus Sting on Thunder. What the fuck are we doing? It was a great match. MJF retained with the Heat Seeker after 30 minutes. It drew a bad rating even by collision standards because it was up against the World Series and a lot of good college football games. Again, why are you putting 
look, collisions in a, like a, a weird situation, especially during college football season, where really nothing they're going to do is going to penetrate into like a greater audience because those people are watching other things. Your opportunity is when college football goes away and suddenly Saturdays have nothing on and you have an opportunity. Why are you programming like your hottest, best shit up against things you can't possibly beat? I and just with don't get three, it. With three days build, they announced it on Dynamite on Wednesday they did and one, did the match on Saturday. They did one really amazing video package for yeah. it, which I loved. It was fantastic. But all that did was put into perspective what a real feud between these two could be. It also didn't even air on Dynamite. I think it just aired on Twitter and Rampage. Granted, you could come back to this. There's nothing stopping oh, yeah. you from doing like it wasn't like a super clean victory. It wasn't definitive. Like, do you think Tony just realized at the last minute that MJF was about to pass Omega's like title reign record and like threw the match together for that reason? I'm guessing so. Um, also, like I'm not. I think a lot of Kenny Omega's problem these days is that he's not always super healthy. So when he gets gives you the green light, it's like, oh, fuck, throw him in some big shit. Like, let's go. He might not be healthy a month from now. Yeah. And finally, uh, WWE exists. Crown sure Jewel. does. <laughs> the, the company that does 99% of the wrestling business in America <laughs> and occupies, I don't know, 1% of our attention. Yep. Even though it's good now. Like, it's a good show. I like it. It's just not nearly as interesting as watching AEW burn to the ground. Did you see the news item that just came out that, like, Triple H was telling people, all right, at the Fastlane press conference, (laughs) they might say something about CM Punk. So just be ready for that, all right? And then nobody nobody fucking asked. What a bunch of stooges these reporters are. But this is what WWE is like. They just live in a blessed life where, like, nothing bad ever happens and no one challenges. There's no chaos. Triple H just has a firm, steady, good hand on the tiller and everything's fine. So WWE's got their Saudi Arabia crown jewel show on Saturday. Um, Pretty big card. Roman Reigns versus LA Knight for the title. Cody versus Damian Priest, Rollins versus Drew McIntyre, John Cena versus Solo Sokoa, Rey Mysterio versus Logan Paul, and some other matches. Um, Pretty big card. I don't foresee anything too huge happening here. Like, Roman's obviously going to retain. I would imagine Logan Paul wins the U.S. title. Yeah. As usual, since it's a Saudi Arabia show, I won't be watching. I've <laughs> never seen any of them. So, I mean, it's a great card. Wish it were like a SummerSlam. But, I mean, ho- hopefully you guys enjoy it. And then we'll have so- we'll have a Survivor Series in a couple weeks where we'll get both War Games and Raw versus SmackDown matches, it looks like. Wow. Isn't that the dream? Isn't yeah. that the best imaginable version of Survivor Series is to get Raw versus SmackDown and War Games? Feels like and, what always wanted. And maybe CM Punk if they're just blowing smoke up our asses. Nakamura is doing some cryptic promos looking for a new challenger. And he started doing the GTS. Hmm. Yes, that ah, is interesting. It's probably Randy Orton. If it's not CM Punk... They cannot do a mystery opponent. Like, it would be a disaster if they did a mystery opponent and it was anyone other than Punk in Chicago. I think that would be fucking hilarious. If it's Randy Orton. 
I mean, if it's Orton, fans will still be like, okay, that's cool. It's Randy. I, I hope it's, it's like Randy Orton's been gone like a year and a half. Yeah, it's been a long time. And he was super over when he left. Yeah. He's gonna get a giant pop when he comes. And back. he doesn't have the Matt Riddle anchor around his neck anymore. This could be God. an awesome run. I think he, I want him and Co. I think him and Cody could be a super interesting dynamic. I also think that like right towards the end of that Matt Riddle run, like he really figured out how that character can be a baby face. Like legend Randy Orton, who's yeah. just having a good time, is like a good baby face. That but works. just bring him back and have it. Bring him back, have him be Cody's buddy for a few weeks, and then have and then him fucking turn on, him. Yes. turn on Cody and massacre him. And that's what Cody can do until April yeah. when it's time for him to finish the story. It just, just makes sense. Just Orton being like, you were my lackey. You were my young boy. Now you think you're a legend. You're not a legend. Your dad was a fat joke. God, there's just so much there. Yeah. <laughs> you always worship your dad and tell him, talk about how he got you here. I got you here, boy. No one knew yeah. who you were. You were just a dipshit with no knee pads before I took you in. I loved it. I think that feud could be awesome. I could just like you could imagine the venom Randy will produce. Got to see him in a, a really heated feud against somebody other than like Bray Wyatt, where he can actually like talk about yeah. real shit. That's exciting. I would be in for that. Had, it feels like we haven't had that in five years. Yeah. Maybe when he feuded with Kofi and he's like, Kofi Kingston's a joke. It's a disgrace that he's champion. We were robbed of straight shooter Randy Orton for most of his career. Because you know he's the kind of guy who would for sure go there. He doesn't care. (laughs) Just bury everybody. He's the guy who said Eddie's in hell. He doesn't give a shit. (laughs) All right. Let's turn the clock back to the wonderful year 1989. Just for reference, before we get started with this, Steve, how old were you when this show aired? Negative three months. That's what I thought, you young motherfucker. Um, yeah, 1989 is the year I was born. That's the other reason it was wonderful. I was four. <laughs> so, actually, we're going to start at the end of 1988. Jim Crockett went bankrupt. Wah, wah. They were doing a lot of stupid shit. They were flying around the country on a private jet. They were running shows all over the country and not drawing for shit. They were buying syndicated TV all over. They expanded way too fast. They put everybody in the company on guaranteed contracts. And then their pay-per-views didn't draw for shit because Vince sabotaged them. And so they ran out of money and Ted Turner swooped in and bought the company because he wanted to mess with Vince McMahon and he wanted wrestling on his TV shows, on his TV channel. So Ted Turner now owns WCW. And you wonder when he bought it, if he was just like, well, I guess this is just a thing that I'm just going to shove down into my TV people. All he cared about was keeping it in existence. I don't think he spared a single fucking thought to what he was going to do with it when he had it. No, but he needs someone he can trust to run it. And the name turns out to be Jim Hurd, who has an interesting background. People make fun of Jim Hurd, pizza boy. Oh, yeah, he was a guy. He was a Pizza Hut guy. He was, yes, a vice president at Pizza Hut. But before that, he had been a director for both Vince Sr.'s Capital Wrestling Corporation and Sam Muchnick's St. Louis Territory, directed his TV show, and then I think became the station manager at the channel that aired Wrestling at the Chase. 
And, um, and let's be clear, up until this point, Wrestling at the Chase was still the most successful wrestling television show in the history of professional wrestling. Yeah, one of the best there had ever been. Um, he obviously does not distinguish himself with this run in WCW, although I think he had some, we'll talk about it. I think he did some good things here. I don't think he should have had any control over creative. That's, I think he that should was have his had, downfall. Yeah, he should have had the same role that Bischoff had when he first started. Like, you need to clean up this business and make it profitable and interesting to viewers. And I think he could have done that. He had a lot of interesting ideas about it. He didn't know shit about booking. So some examples of where their business is as we're rounding the corner into 1989. Uh, Christmas night in Charlotte, the biggest night of the year. They only drew a $50,000 house. Woof. <laughs> Coal in their stockings. Um, instead of the big fat paycheck guys were expecting, they got a big lump of coal for Christmas that year. Oh, yeah. Uh, a few days later, they run Chicago, $30,000 house. God. December 30th, St. Louis, 50 grand. Uh, New Year's Day in Atlanta, they drew 10,000 people, but that was with $5 tickets in the balcony. I don't... This is some TNA numbers, man. <laughs> These are some very pathetic houses we're talking here. Like, once you've, like, paid the taxes and the rent on the arena and the wrestlers' transpo, no money left to pay the wrestlers with. I don't think they were turning profits on a lot of these shows. It's funny because if you had been a wrestler who was working for Jim Crockett and, like, you're bought by Turner, obviously towards the end of Jim Crockett, they were going so financially bankrupt so fast that you probably thought you were about to be out of a job or at least were going to miss a bunch of checks. At least you don't have to worry about that now. But you probably assume, like, oh, man, paydays are going to go up. We're working for Turner now. That's guaranteed money, maybe. No. In fact, you're making probably less than you were before. The first big show of, you know, the Turner era was Starcade 88. And their big booking decision is what are they going to do with the world title? Ric Flair is defending in the main event against Lex Luger, who's been chasing the title all year since he was kicked out of the Four Horsemen. Luger's got to win the title here or he's dead. Heard makes the call to have Flair retain, which I think he was right to do. I don't think Luger was ready to be champion, especially as a babyface. No. And as we'll, I think we'll discuss a little bit later, Luger's perfect role is still available, and it's not that. But it is still something they could have pivoted to. Uh, the year kicked off January 1st at the Omni, as only Jim Crockett could with Abdullah the Butcher winning a bunkhouse battle royal. God, that's wretched. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, the big story is Dusty Rhodes quitting, and there's a whole lot of stuff that happened here. There was a bunch of issues. He had been booking the territory since, like, 84 at this point. He was first removed as booker after he... A, tried to get Ric Flair to lose the title to Rick Steiner in a squash match at Starcade. Which is one of the all-time, like, did he really think that that was going to work? I don't know that he was dead serious about that. He said that that was more just out of frustration because no one could come up with an idea. Yeah, he just wanted to fuck over Flair. Him and Flair were at each other's throats at this point. So I think the real thing that happened is 
there was a power struggle between him and Flair here, and he lost. And Flair, I'm sure, was just like, I'm not like staying with like Flair's contract. I think is running out soon, and he's just like, I'm not staying if like he's booking. Like I'm out of here if he's got the book. Once somebody's proposed jobbing you out in 30 seconds yeah. at the biggest show of the year, I think it's fair not to be able to trust that person anymore. So then, in defiance of a no-blood order they've gotten from the network, he has the Road Warriors jam a spike into his eye on an episode of Saturday Night. That didn't go over well. It's also just bizarre, because yeah. the order didn't come from, like, Jim Hurd or from Ric Flair. They came from the network. Like, what? what who is your complaint with? So he's removed his booker, but he sticks around as a talent for a little while, but it's just not going to work. Like, he can't go back to just being one of the boys after he's been the booker for years. It's never going to work. Especially with him and Flair just staring daggers yeah. at each other across the locker room. So he quits on January 17th to go back to Florida and uh, try to resurrect the Florida Territory. That obviously didn't work, and he ends up going to the WWF in the spring. One of the, not one of the great what ifs, but apparently Vern approached him, or huh. I think I think it was actually uh, like Greg, who like approached him about like, hey, you want to come to the AWA? We'll pay you like all the money we have left. They didn't have any money left. No, but it would have been like him versus Zabisco to try to pop that territory. Yeah, I think the AWA was dead at this point. Yep. Uh, Dusty's replacement is Booker, and this is one of the biggest decisions you have to make. So I'm curious. If you're in Jim Hurd's shoes at this point, who would you have hired as Booker? To be totally honest with you, if you look back, again, Dusty and Vince are the only people who have ever run national wrestling promotions to this point. But there is one other person who sort of has, and it's Bill Watts. And I would have tried to get Watts here. Watts is who I would have hired, too. Um, I would not have given him complete control, just creative. And I think he could have done some good stuff, especially at this point. Few people have ever booked better wrestling TV than Bill Watts. He was a genius at putting together like the, you know, Mid-South's one hour TV show. And I'm not Uh, even sure he would have done it because he wanted complete control. That's what he had in UWF and Mid-South. That's what he eventually got in WCW. By the time he gets it, though, he's like five years past the business, hasn't been paying attention. Like, it's just not a good fit anymore. But here, he's only been out for like a year. And this is all his talent that's in this company. So, yeah, reportedly the names who were in the running but didn't get it were Eddie Gilbert and Kevin Sullivan, who are on the current roster, and Bill Watts. Again, I think Watts was the hire here, but he probably didn't want to come in if he wasn't going to be in charge. Obviously, Sullivan is an idea. However, I think that's a disaster, specifically because he would have just booked himself on top. That's what he does. Because this company desperately needs a top heel, and I think he would have looked at that situation and said, it needs me. Um, so wh- who they go with is George Scott, who... You know, it's a, it makes sense. He booked the Carolinas really successfully in the late 70s, the early 80s. He'd been the booker for the WWF during their national expansion. So he booked the first couple WrestleManias, the beginning of Hogan's title run. And I don't really know what he had been doing before this. He'd been somewhere. He'd been in some territory. But 
anyway, him coming in feels like it makes sense, but this ends up being a disaster. He's very old school booker who starts trying to book just 1970s wrestling in 1989. This is going to sound asinine because like the, the way that they actually approach booking is very different. But it's the same kind of mistake they made with Vince Russo, where it's just like yeah. assuming because it worked at another time in another place that's wildly different than your circumstances that it's going to work here, despite a lot of red flags, it's just a stupid, stupid plan. Reportedly, Jim Crockett tried to book or tried to block Scott's hiring because they had an old beef from back in the day, but he didn't succeed. This is the nest of vipers this company is at this point. Also, why the fuck does Jim Crockett have any power whatsoever? I don't know. <laughs> this is how you know that Ted Turner didn't pay any fucking attention. Imagine you buy a company that's a disaster because one man specifically fucked it up. You just leave that man with power when you buy it? No, of course you don't. Uh, the rest of the booking committee at this point was Blackjack Mulligan, Gene Anderson, and Paul Jones. I think they were really more agents than helping with the book. And I think, like, Mulligan was always just the enforcer. It was like, if somebody doesn't want to do a job, Mulligan will beat him up. Hey, he used to be the guy on house shows because he knew that boys wouldn't act up if Mulligan was the agent. <laughs> oh, a lot of changes to the business. Talents start getting paid a regular amount every two weeks instead of the way the guaranteed contracts worked before you would just get paid on the houses. And then each quarter they would like, if you were short your guarantee, they would catch you up and make a balloon payment better for their cash flow and better for the boys to just pay everybody every two weeks. So I think that's a positive change. I'm imagining somebody trying to talk to Turner human resources about yeah. like how wrestling payoffs. Oh, we just work. pay them when we pay them. Yeah. It depends on the house. So you mean sometimes they might make like $20? Yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, the company started paying for their hotel rooms during trips, and wrestlers could fly from their hometowns instead of having to get themselves to Atlanta for their flights like they were before. So some guys, were, I mean, a lot of the guys still lived in the Carolinas and were having to drive from like Charlotte or Raleigh to Atlanta to make their flight, which wouldn't always be cheaper for the company is the thing. <laughs> some cases it was cheaper to just fly them out of Charlotte than Atlanta. Yeah, absolutely. Especially depending on where they were going. Um, so these are all huge lifestyle upgrades for the boys, for sure. They're not making more money necessarily, but like their lives are easier. No, and for a lot of guys, the, the, most guys' money did get cut because I, I think everybody kind of acknowledged that most of the contracts they had been signed to were not reasonable for the amount of business the company was doing at the time. Which but is they weren't going to get paid that money anyway. The company was <clears throat> corrupt. Which is a double whammy because if you're not making any money. And the management is super chaotic and toxic. Guess what that means you're going to do? Look for a new job, which most of the main eventers do. Yeah. There's definitely a directive from Turner that they want better matches on TV. Uh, this leads to the creation of the Sunday night main event show, which was named that because Ted Turner asked if they could have a show that would have, you know, quote unquote, main event quality matches each week. So they create the Sunday show main event. Before this, the flagship show has always been the Saturday night show. During the course of 89, the Saturday show is so bad in the beginning that the Sunday show starts beating it in the ratings because people know there's good matches on Sunday. 
that's so fucking sad. Why don't you just put good matches on Saturday? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can't tell you. Ugh. Uh, the Saturday show does not get better, with one notable exception, which is the January 21st episode of what's good. I call it Saturday night, but at that time it's called World Championship Wrestling. Um, Ricky Steamboat debuts as Eddie Gilbert's mystery partner against Flair and Barry Windham. Hell of a match, like 20 minutes. Steamboat pins Flair with the crossbody off the top rope. Um they did a 3.6 rating for that show, which was the strongest they had done on Saturday for a for a long time at that point. That's awesome. Um, it, it's super cool. It's it's definitely one of those situations, especially back in those days, where you're like calling your buddies and being like, "Yo, steamboats and WCW, turn it on." I know it's yeah. been shit lately. Just turn it on. Honestly, Steamboat got a pretty lukewarm response. I think the fans viewed him as a WWF guy at this point. Well, okay, so this is the interesting thing, because we're in 1989, and it must be said that we are post-national expansion from when Steamboat was here before. I think the majority of WCW's fan base are probably new from like the past five or six years, or at least mostly so. They don't know about Ricky Steamboat's history with the NWA. They don't know that he feuded with Flair in 83. That's the pre-Starcade era. Steamboat coming back, I think it was a combination of Ric Flair wanted him back, wanted a fresh opponent, and he knew he could make magic with Steamboat, loved wrestling him. And Steamboat had a good relationship with George Scott, who booked him both in Crockett and in the WWF. Um, when you look at the roster, Flair definitely needed a new challenger. Like, he's done with Luger. I don't. I don't know if Sting's ready. I don't think Sting is ready to be the world champion at this point, although they should be moving in that direction. And as we go down the rosters, not a lot of other options. Michael Hayes, I guess. I will argue that they should have at least gotten Michael Hayes into the main event around this time, because for all he of his shortcomings, over. he's unbelievably over and he yeah. could work hot angles. Yeah, and, like, great promos, crowd loves him. A little weird to see him as a face, honestly. Yeah, but, like, him on his own without the Freebirds is, like, a genuinely good babyface act. And him and Flair Flair had drawn big money together in the past. They had done a much bigger show with the Superdome than WCW would do a few months after this. The idea of Michael Hayes and Ric Flair having to uneasily team up against a heel force sounds fucking awesome. Uh, another big story. J.J. Dillon jumped ship to the WWF in late January. Um, I think the WWF hired him because he's a stooge who knows like all the contracts and when they're up. And the other big thing in this era is just being able to get in touch with like having a black book with the wrestlers phone numbers is really helpful because it would be. Hard to get in touch with somebody otherwise. You don't really know where guys live or what their phone number is. You can't just DM them on Twitter like you can today. Yeah, if you didn't have the Yellow Pages like selection for Charlotte, North Carolina, I don't really know how you would even find any of these people. Yeah. Dylan is replaced as the Four Horsemen's manager by Hero Matsuda. <sighs> yeah. Like, there's nothing Scott's there's, trying to get race heat. There's nothing wrong with Hiro Matsuda. It just doesn't make sense that he's here. He's a heel manager, and he's he doesn't he's not a talker. He barely no. talks. He can barely speak English. Like it's just yeah. not his thing. 
like Hiro Matsuda has done a lot of cool things in the business. Like there's nothing wrong with Hiro Matsuda. It's just that this is a weird use of him. Uh, February 15th, five days before this show, they ran the Clash of the Champions from the Cleveland Convention Center. There's no Gund Arena yet. God, what is wrestling without the Gund Arena? I don't even know what that looks like. They drew 5,000 people in a 4.6 rating on TBS. That was a 7.0 share, meaning 7% of households were watching it. 2.1 million homes. That's, pretty good rating. Not that's bad. That's pretty fucking good, yeah. Yeah, you'd kill to get a 7 share for, I don't know, is the World, Se- is the World Series doing a 7 share these days? It the only World's, did 9 million viewers. The World Series is getting obliterated by college, like, volleyball and volleyball, women's basketball. Yeah. Like, there's not, no. <laughs> uh, the big angle on that show, Flair and Steamboat had a brawl where Steamboat ripped Flair's suit off and, you know, stripped him down to just his briefs, which... It's funny because the briefs probably had more coverage than Flair's wrestling tights did. That is the funny thing is that everyone's freaking out about like, oh, he's down to a skivvy. Like, okay, but he just looks like he's wrestling. It's the Thank same God he shit. wasn't wearing boxers or it literally would have been covering more than his trunks did. Yep. Um, so this is a redo of an angle they had done like back in the 70s, which Flair says set the business on fire when they did at that time. Sure. Um, so ironically... The time they did it before, I think I think it was in 83, one of the models Flair had accompanying him that night, the future Mrs. Bonnie Steamboat. Flair thinks this was the first time they met. Wait a minute. Really? Yeah. He said like maybe like she was a model who like it wasn't like she he as far as Flair knows, like she wasn't dating Ricky back then. Like it was just a model they brought in to be on his arm for this angle. And like she and Steamboat met that night and started going out and ended up getting married. Okay, so I think maybe now would be a good time for you to talk about your pitch for what this storyline should have been, because that's an amazing non sequitur into it. Yeah, so here's what I think they should have done. They should have dug up the footage and the pictures of this angle, and Flair should have started claiming that uh, he banged Mrs. Steamboat back in the day. Obviously, this is the storyline they do with him and Randy Savage in the WWF that hasn't happened yet, but it would have been perfect here for Flair to be like, oh, Mrs. Steamboat was the biggest wildcat I've ever met. This woman had me weak in the knees. You can't believe the things she would do and say to me. It's just wild because, like, you can do a lot of those kind of angles. And, like, the Miss Elizabeth one was pretty good. But to have, like, literal pictures of you with this person from, like, before she was with Steamboat is so compelling. Like, yeah, that night we went back to the Marriott and she rode Space Mountain and she's been looking for a return trip ever since. she wants to do it again. He saw that look in her eyes. He knows that look. Woo! And shit, Steamboat and his wife are about to get divorced anyway. Fucking let her turn heel and go with Flair. Have her turn on him. Everybody hated her anyway. Like, the most legitimate thing you could get out of this feud is to do that because they have so... There's more energy between Steamboat and his own wife than between Steamboat and Flair. Instead, like, the the way that... It's just like Steamboat is fighting for the American family. (sighs) Sounds like a right-wing Dan Quayle Republican with that haircut. 
it also it just doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Like, what does the American family mean to Ricky the Steve, Dragon Steamboat? It's never been his character before. He's always just been like a white meat shithead with like nothing really going on. But like here, they really lean into that. Yeah, and like the other problem, they don't put any heat on. Like, this is a good angle, but there's no heat here. It's really just like, oh, Steamboat wants to win the title. Flair wants to keep it. They did have they did a good angle where Flair hit. Um, Eddie Gilbert with a like he had Wyndham put Gilbert face down on the concrete floor in the studio and Flair hit him with a knee drop and that was a good angle but he probably should have done that to Steamboat to build heat for that match you need the equivalent of like uh, Savage dropping the ring bell on Steamboat's neck like that's what really makes that match work you don't have any of that here uh, the crowd in Cleveland was mostly cheering Flair. Like, Flair's got six hot women with him, whereas Steamboat has his wife, who has some real stank energy about her. <laughs> it's real and that, little, and that little brat, Richie. I hate to put it like this, but Steamboat and his wife have the energy of, like, you invite your friends over for a dinner party, <laughs> and you're just like, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. You start cracking open the wine a little bit earlier than you planned. Oh, man. Um, so tonight in Chi-Town, we're going to have Flair defending against Steamboat. We got Barry Windham defending the U.S. title against Lex Luger. Rick Steiner defending the TV title against Mike Rotunda. The Road Warriors defending the NWA tag titles against the Varsity Club and more. That's a pretty loaded card. Yeah, some good stuff. Now... Before we get to the show, are you ready for the places we're going to go for a 1989 lightning round? I'm genuinely terrified. There could be, like, deaths in this. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> People died. The WWF admitted pro wrestling was predetermined in a hearing at the New Jersey legislature, and I think everyone was like, yeah, we know. The funniest thing is to like to hear people talk about that era and like what a taboo it was to talk about that. And like no one was smartened up, brother, until Vince McMahon. Everyone knew. Aside from like kids. Famously, my wife's dad, my father-in-law, was like the gigantic biggest fucking wrestling fan. He was a huge fan of the Sheik. Like he would go to Detroit with his dad (laughs) to watch the wrestling shows all the time. But he believed it was totally real. This is like 1966, right? And his brothers were like, hey, idiot, that shit's fake. He's like, no, it's not. And then he found out it really was. And he hates wrestling to this day. (laughs) But most of humanity is not like that. Yeah, there were newspaper exposés back in, like, the 20s and 30s. Ironically, back when pro wrestling was more of a shoot. Right. Like, when it was a little more of a gray area, where I think there were some matches that may have been legitimate. I think back then it was more like it had been a shoot, but they were starting to figure out how to work it. But isn't that so much more offensive if most of it's a shoot, but then you find out that one match is a work? Like, if you found out that one UFC fight was genuinely a work, wouldn't that just piss you the fuck off? Like, it it could ruin the company. Like, you know, like, if Tyson Fury fought a guy and they said it was a real boxing fight, but then it was obviously rigged, wouldn't that just piss you off? And the guy whooped his ass, but the judges let Fury win anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I I fucking hate Tyson Fury. I can't stand that guy. Boxing. Boxing's such a fucking <laughs> letdown every time. What a carny sport. Jesus Christ. 
Oh, at least we just admit wrestling's fake. That's the thing. I love carny sports, but goddamn, admit what you are. Dusty was reported to have been making over $600,000 a year before he was fired. That's... Plus, he was also getting paid to book. Let's play a fun game called How Many People on the Modern Roster Do You Think We're Making 600000 Right Now? Oh, During today? a boom. A lot of, I mean, like a lot. I, 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 what, what do you think the average salary is today? I bet it, I think it's over half a mil. I think it's still like two fifty, man. I okay. don't. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe don't being generous, but like the, the guys on top are making millions, and right. like I bet the, you think the Miz is making a mil? That's a good question. See, this is I don't really know, but it would be fascinating to find out like when in WWE history would it have been like six hundred thousand? No one's making that kind of money. I did. I don't know. If Diesel made six hundred grand when he was the champion. Yeah, th- this is like crazy fucking, especially for eighty yeah. nine. Are you fucking oh, kidding yeah. me? That's well north. That's like one. Po- it's like over a. That might be one point two, one point four mil today. I think genuinely Hogan has got to be the only guy in the business making more money than that. Yeah, maybe Flair because Flair was the champion. Maybe. Yeah, Flair might have made seven hundred as champion. But he's like working five times yeah. harder than Dusty is. <laughs> oh, Tony Schiavone jumps ship to the WWF. And he lives his dream for like three weeks, where he has the greatest time, and he gets a vision of what his life could have been, and it's so happy and wonderful, and then he fucking blows it. <laughs> Roddy Piper reportedly negotiated with Turner before signing uh, with the WWF to go to WrestleMania five instead. Now this is an yeah. interesting what if, because Piper is a genuine Piper, but he couldn't have come in as a heel because he is beloved. Yeah. <laughs> David Heath, aka Gangrel, wrestled a number of TV matches as a job guy. Future porn director Gangrel. Yeah. That's that's a fascinating thing. Like, yeah, the pornos he made had better production value than these shows. They're better lit, I think. Way better lighted in. Uh, better plots in some cases too. Still Kevin Sullivan though. I'm just assuming. <laughs> New Japan announced they would be running shows in Sacramento featuring Russian amateur wrestlers. Okay, so this is part of Inoki's lifelong thing where he really wanted to have a promotion in California. This is what New Japan Strong eventually became. So that because it was easy to make the flight from Japan to California, like easier than like to go to like the East Coast. So he kind of wanted to like build like a a sub New Japan territory in California as like a breeding ground because it was easier for all the wrestlers for all the rest of the world to get there. So like it, it made sense. This is. This is like when Vince said that he wanted to launch WWE Network or something like it in like 86. Like this is laughably ahead of its time. Yeah. But next week I'm going to talk about the show they did in Japan with Zangiev and these Russians that did like a ridiculous gate. Like genuinely though, like this is a cool idea that really worked that people don't remember. Did like a $3 million gate. Fuck yeah. Yeah. That's, those Russians were awesome. Can't remember what Starcade that was. Fucking Zangief, man. Real life Zangief. <laughs> Jay Strongbow's son, Vincent Young, debuted as a breakdancer in American Flag Tights. Everybody hated this guy, both Holy. on screen and off. Holy. I want you to think about like all of like 
the the nepotism babies who have gotten chances in wrestling in the past, like the Eric Wattses and the Garrett Bischoffs, who were just heat-seeking missiles before they ever debuted. And understand that this guy is so hated to this day that people don't even speak his name. <laughs> the company made the decision to stop having managers travel to the house shows. This really pissed off Jim Cornette. Well, it probably cut his paychecks down pretty significantly. No, it didn't, because they had guaranteed contracts. He was just mad because he didn't think the matches were going to get over without him and Heyman. I mean, that's probably true. I mean, that that makes sense as a cost-cutting measure. But if you think about it, like, the managers are the show, right? Like, otherwise, what do you have? Lex Luger repeatedly said allocades instead of accolades in his promos. Allocades. <sighs> the bunkhouse stampede match that had been promoted for this show was dropped as a result of Dusty being fired. Thank God. They <laughs> they couldn't cancel that dumb shit fast enough the second he got out the door. Like, okay, we're, we all agree no more of this, right? No more ever. Takata and Bob Backlund faced off in Japan's UWF promotion. Guys, the funny thing is Bob Backlund kicked ass in the UWF. We have spent this entire podcast shitting on Bob Backlund, who is one of the shittiest American wrestlers of all time. Certainly not deserving of his years-long title reign in WWF. But for one shining moment, he was fucking incredible in the best possible place for him to be. And that's as a dorky white American who the Japanese fans laughed at until he started stretching motherfuckers yeah. for real. <sighs> Bobby Heenan was rumored to play Curly in a Three Stooges movie. Rumored not, by who? Come on. That, that he, wasn't going to happen. By Bobby Heenan, Paul yeah, Dave Meltzer. They weren't casting Bobby fucking Heenan. Meltzer wrote that wrestling pay-per-view buy rates were declining, quote, faster than the quality of Owen Hart matches. Ouch. What was that about? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, huh. I guess Meltzer wasn't a big fan of the Blue Blazer. But God, that's... that's, that's uh, Sometimes Meltzer gets mean, but not usually. That's And to Owen Hart, of all people? Like, okay, I guess Owen's come back from Japan, so he's probably mad that he's wrestling the American yeah. style now. So I guess I get that. All Japan Pro Wrestling co-promoted a show with Bob Geigel's Central States Wrestling in Kansas City. Baba had this weird way yeah. of, like promoting with the most random he really wanted to be like an earnest and honest member of the nwa he would come all the way to new york for the meetings he would go to the cauliflower alley like he was like I, he wanted to be part of the club and that included promoting with people who like it made no sense no one in japan gives a fuck about those people and finally the hammer at a press conference promoting that New Japan show in Sacramento, Buzz Sawyer challenged Mike Tyson, saying he would put up $10 million to fight him. $10 million? Where the fuck is he going to get ten? Buzz Sawyer, where is he going to get $10 million? Is he going to rob Fort Knox? This is fascinating because, like, so Tyson at this point is the unbeatable god yeah. of the world. He's knocking motherfuckers out in, like, 30 seconds. And so, like, I get wanting to get a piece of that by being like, oh, let me call him out, like, 
Andy Kaufman style and see if maybe we can work something. But it, not Buzz Sawyer. <laughs> Inoki could have fought him. He fought Ali. I bet you, I bet you actual money when he flew to Japan to do that fight yeah. with Buster Douglas. At some point, Antonio Inoki got in front of him and pitched, hey, let's do the rematch. Now it's me versus you. <laughs> I'm going to kick you in the shins, man. <laughs> All right. So to get into the show, it's Monday, February 20th, 1989. What do you think of a pay-per-view on a Monday? I hate it. I think it's never been a good idea ever. No. Saturday, Sunday, Friday, maybe Friday. Thursday on Thanksgiving. I'll give you that. Like, other than that, just do it the days people expect pay-per-views to be. We're at the UIC Pavilion in Chicago, Illinois. Um, it's about 8,000 people in attendance, 5,000 paid for a $68,000 gate. Um, that's like 80, 80 something percent full. It's like a 10,000 seat arena for comparison. A couple nights before this, the WWF ran the Rosemont horizon and did 18,000 people in a $200,000 gate. Sheesh. Yeah, I mean, this amazing thing. coincidence that whenever Crockett was having a pay-per-view, the WWF would run a house show in the same town a few nights before. Yeah, it's funny how that works. Um, this is still a pretty big success for them because, again, they're not hot right now, and this is not their home turf. They really should not be running in Chicago. The only reason they are is because they have the Road Warriors and they think that they can draw just because they have them, which, I mean, probably they are but not nearly enough. On commentary, Jim Ross and Magnum TA. I think this is the last time we'll have Magnum on commentary as we're doing this, which I think is too bad. I actually liked him. I love him in this role. Yeah, like so much credibility. He has so much credibility. The fans love him. And like, I was just imagining, like, can you imagine if there was ever something like, you know, when like Lawler would like stand up for somebody, like if TA did that, like the pop the fans would give. I don't know. Like, how fragile was he? At this point, he's extremely fragile. He's not taking yeah. bumps or anything like But he could, like, stand somebody off, you know? Yeah. The crowd would go wild. Yeah. And, like, the heat it would get if somebody even, like, breathed on him. Yes. Or, like, like I... just having a heel talk shit to him. Like, imagine if a heel was like, yeah, you're just a bitter, jealous, crippled old man. You never got to be the champion. Also, like, the earnestness with which he puts over, like, Steamboat really wants this belt. And, like, you can hear in his voice, like, this belt means so much. It's all anybody ever thinks about. Like, it's all he ever thought about. It was his destiny. Uh, They do the quick opening, which is, like, like you said, like a music video. And then they cut into the arena where we're greeted with a shot of a bunch of empty seats. Why did they shoot just, first of all, that music video is a is a really interesting idea, but the footage is so goddamn boring because it's just house show matches in slow motion set to music. It's not good. Uh, and, they, yeah, and then they show literally the all the empty seats in the whole arena with the first shot. Great work. I wonder if this was one of the times they printed the wrong time on the tickets because that seemed to happen every pay per view in this era. God. Um, 
And then we get an interview with Bob Cottle and Michael Hayes, who is wearing a massive Confederate flag robe. So I thought that he got because like giant loud boos immediately start up as he starts talking. <laughs> I thought it was because he was wearing the Confederate flag. You told me that actually because the Russian assassin was walking. Yeah, the I think that I'm that. pretty sure that was the Russian assassin's entrance. OK, so that makes more sense. But it was just very funny to hear him cutting like, all right, guys, we're going to go out there and it's going to be so great. And I'm listening to the thousands and they sound like millions as they're booing the shit out of him. <laughs> Also, during this promo, they bleep out the word Chicago. That was weird. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know what that was about. Unless he maybe called they, it shit Chicago. Maybe they thought he said shit. <laughs> oh, opening match. We got Michael Hayes taking on the Russian assassin. Um, believe this is Jack Victory under the mask here. Yeah, they, on Wikipedia it says that it's the Angel of Death, but there's no oh, way that it was. Right. This is not that guy. This guy's much flabbier and has blonde hair. The Angel of Death was like a bodybuilder who was bald. Yep. Um, yeah, I think uh, Paul Sheldon had quit or gotten fired, so it's Victory here. I, and I can't remember if Victory was the other Russian assassin. I think he was. I think so. Um. They've actually got a little entrance set here with flashing lights. This was kind of good. You know what? This set is pretty nice. There's like most of the guys have music, though God knows what their original music was because most of this shit is dubbed. Yeah. But like there, an effort is being made to make this an actual watchable presentation. I appreciate it. Uh, Michael Hayes comes out to Bad Street USA, gets a monster pop. Crowd loves Big Mike. When he gets up on the turnbuckle and starts shaking his ass, the ladies and the guys go wild. Here's the thing. Michael PSAs is an unpredictable racist weirdo. So I understand why people didn't want to put in. And the the perception within the business was that he couldn't work a match to save his fucking life. Uh, but he's not really any worse than half the other no, motherfuckers in the main event. That's the thing. When people bury him, I'm just like, I feel like he was just an average wrestler of this time. Yeah. Like, was he Ric Flair? No, but like they, they get these super, super hot mid carters and then they just leave him in the mid card forever. Like Michael Hayes could have absolutely main evented some pay-per-views. Two things fascinated me about this match. One, Dave Meltzer sitting in the front row opposite the hard camera. Best I seats in the house. I did not recognize him, and I, I definitely would not have if you had not told me in advance it was him, because he is a child. Yellow shirt, curly perm. And what's the second one? Two, this is a Mark referee call in this match. What? Really? This is, this is a referee from the Illinois State Athletic Commission. Whoa. I don't know how this worked. There's like one. This is the only one that this guy worked all night. And I guess he could work this one because it's just like the baby face going over. But I still find that idea so fascinating. Like, are the re are these commission referees smartened up? Like, I guess they know the rules of pro wrestling, but do they like actually inform? Like, if somebody like throws a punch, why does is he going to step in and disqualify him? Like, 
I just find it so unpredictable. That's a fascinating idea. That's the kind of thing that you think like Bill Watts would have done like during his reign of terror in WCW. Be like, we're bringing in Mark referee. So if you do a disqualification, if you cheat in front of a ref, he's going to fucking disqualify you. Get a distraction in there. Work smarter, motherfucker. I love the idea of like just not like them being professional and not being able to be distracted. Like the manager gets up on the apron. They just rightfully ignore them. Yep. Um, this match went so, so long. 17 minutes. 17 minutes. Now, again, it was I, so just, boring. I just said the nicest thing that I've ever said about Michael PSAs. That so, like, sucked. Michael PSAs can have a great 10-minute match. He will never have a great 17-minute match without at least two other motherfuckers with him. <laughs> This should have been five minutes. Like, Hayes does some posing and some dancing, gets a little offense in. The Russian cheats and gets the advantage, and then Hayes makes his comeback and pins him with the DDT. Five minutes, pop the crowd. 17 minutes is insane. At one point during the Russian Assassin's endless, endless heat segments of crappy little punches and headlocks, Jim Ross says... Well, you know, these Russian athletes, they're very methodical, but they don't make a lot of mistakes. And then he immediately hits him with like a closed fist punch. And JR is just like, oh, I guess that was a mistake. (laughs) Oh, Hayes wins with the DDT in 17 minutes. Just insanely long. But when he hit this must be said, though, the crowd's with them for 17 minutes. I love Michael Hayes. When Hayes hits the DDT, the crowd explodes. They're throwing babies in the air. This is a bigger reaction than when Steamboat wins the belt. I'm just being honest. It just is. Uh, We go backstage to Coddle. Oh, the game this week. Uh, Ah, Since Meltzer is sitting in the front row, we're going to play a game of who's stooge to Dave Meltzer. I don't think Michael Hayes was one of Meltzer's dudes, was he? No, because I feel like Meltzer was always burying him. I think Paul Jones is the stooge here. (laughs) You think? Maybe the Mark referee. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we go back to Coddle with Ricky Steamboat and his wife, Bonnie, and their son, Richie. This is the shittiest promo. This is right up there along with Chris Benoit's like, promo against Raven, like the <laughs> Nevermore promo, which is the worst promo of all time. This is right up there, man. As Ricky Steamboat holds his child and stands vaguely near his wife... He cuts a rambly promo about how he's doing this for the American family. So, and I quote, those people who work eight to five will know that like there's, there's everything has meaning. Fuck off. Yeah. Trying to make him dusty Rhodes was not a good call. He doesn't have the charisma for it, but also his dipshit kid sucks. (laughs) (laughs) That little brat ruined his intercontinental title run. And he and his wife visibly hate each other. Yeah. (laughs) This was a real misfire. At one point, she pats him on the arm, and I swear to God, it looks like the first time she's touched him in years. (laughs) I don't don't even know how to express how awkward this all is. Next up, we've got another terrible match as Sting takes on Butch Reed. JR, before this match, refers to both of these guys as high flyers. 
Which is the wildest thing anyone has ever said about Butch Reed. Butch Reed's finisher was the flying clothesline. I'll uh, have you know. It has the word flying in it. It's more of a falling clothesline. <laughs> um, seems like George Scott doesn't see much in Sting. I don't think he knows who he is. During this match, I kind of realized this was like an AEW show where they're just like, well, let's give two young dudes a bunch of time. Except, in this case, Butch Reed is not young. Nope. And Sting is just what they think is just some jabroni. I don't know how much time they carved out for this match, but I promise you it wasn't the amount of time they took. 20 minutes! Yeah. No, it's clear these first two matches were super heavy. Like, it's clear the back half of the show got cut down. This is like if Trent Beretta and Powerhouse Hobbs went 25 minutes on an AEW pay-per-view. And you'd be like, what the fuck? Why? Yeah. Uh, Reed is managed by Hiro Matsuda. I don't know if he was officially a horseman, but it seemed like they were, like, trying to get him in there. I can believe Ric Flair was not into that. I love the idea of Butch Reed as a horseman, though. Like, that's, yeah. that's a very different idea. Like, I think Butch Reed is super underrated. I just feel like this guy could never get a break, never got any respect. And, like, he's extremely good, but, like, not over-the-top good in a way that he's going to get pushed to the main event. I but just like, think he's a really solid powerhouse heel who can work. I just want every job that Greg Valentine ever got, Butch Reed should have gotten instead. Yeah. Uh, it's just like he had the misfortune of Bill Watts tried to make him the new junkyard dog when he wasn't suited to be a baby face. You know, he missed out on his intercontinental title run because he had travel problems and they put the belt on honky instead. And uh, I just felt like, you know, as a black man in wrestling in the 80s, the roles you were allowed to play were very limited. And if you miss one opportunity, another one ain't coming along. <laughs> Uh, JR does a good job putting Sting over as a great athlete. He compares him to Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Because that's that made me think that this was like 1985 instead of 1989. Like, we're coming to the end of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. <laughs> also, even his prime, like, he talks about the leaping ability of Larry Bird. Which Fuck is, off. <laughs> yeah, not something I don't associate, like, Larry Bird with great hops. No, Larry Bird was an amazing shooter who was also a cutthroat killer. That's what he was. After an eternity... Sting gets the win with a sunset flip after Teddy Long slaps Reed's hands off the ropes. That is Seems like my... him overstepping a referee's job. But that's such a great Southern spot. It's just yeah. the one where, like, you do it one too many times and the referee kicks you in the hands and then you lose. Like, that, that works every time. And they have a little fight after the match and Sting fights him off. Clearly no hard feelings between Teddy Long and Butch Reed because he'd be managing him pretty shortly after this. He will be, yes. Uh, Bob Cottle then interviews Paulie Dangerously, who, of course, is Paul, a very young Paul Heyman. He's with Randy Rose and not Dennis Condry. Instead, it's Jack Victory. Dangerously explains that because Eaton Lane and Cornette knew Condry too well... He's throwing them a curveball, and he's brought in Jack Victory instead, who they know nothing about. Here's how good Paul Heyman is, is that he makes this compelling and makes sense, even though this is some thrown-together shit. 
absolute bullshit. Dennis Condry no-showed, and they just have to sub somebody in here and try to make the best of it. Who would be another person that they could randomly insert here? Just be like, you guys weren't prepared for Sting. God. <laughs> I'm trying to think of anybody, like, who the other, are there any heels who aren't booked on this show? Scott I don't think anybody credible. No. Rip uh, Morgan, like, it's not a str- getting down to the undercard. Yeah. Oh, okay. So we've got the Midnight Express against the original Midnight Express. The Midnight Express, and it's a six-man tag. Cornette and Dangerously are wrestling. It's Eaton and Lane and Cornette are the Midnight Express. And the original Midnight Express, it was Randy Rose and Jack. It was Randy Rose and Dennis Condry, who I think were the original Midnight Express. I can't remember when Nor- Norvell Austin was in there at some point, too, but I can't remember exactly when that was. But I think Rose and Condry were the original Midnight Express. I believe but so, yeah. It's Rose, Victory, and Polly Dangerously here. There is a very long backstory here. Oh, boy, here we go. Back in the fall... Eaton and Lane had kicked off a feud with Arn and Tully, which is like the all-time tag team dream match in the Carolinas. It's true. Yeah, like Midnight Express are finally going to go babyface and they're fighting the Four Horsemen. But then Arn and Tully quit and went to the WWF. Which really, like, you now have a babyface Midnight Express. Yeah. Aside from the Road Warriors, is there another tag team in this promotion right now? Um, nope. Really, all the tag Vars- teams... The Varsity Club? Yeah, the tag teams that have been basically running the undercard of WCW and NWA throughout the 80s are all gone. Yeah. Um, they'll re- they'll replenish fast. Like, as, over the course of the year, they're going to get... Um, they're going to bring in the Samoans. They're going to get the Freebirds together. Uh, who else do they get? They get Doom together. Yeah. Um, the Skyscrapers. Yeah. The, Ste- the Steiners. Right. But, yeah. Here, it's a little thin. So, the idea Dusty comes up with is bring back the original version of the Midnight Express, Rose and Condry. And have Paul Heyman managing them. And we have Heyman and Cornette is the magic here. Like, those are going to be some unbelievable promos. They did an angle where they hit Cornette with Heyman's cell phone. And Cornette did the sickest blade job anyone had ever seen. Like, before the Muda scale existed. Yeah. This may have been it. (laughs) This looks like a murder. Cornette just bled like a stuck pig. Also, to you people out there who were born after, say, 2000, um, the cell phone that he was carrying was roughly the size of, like, a crowbar. Yeah, it was like a brick. Although, man, hit somebody with one of these new iPhones, they'll knock you out. Yeah, that's true. Um, So... There have been a bunch of changes to the booking regime since then, so the idea has gotten muddled. This is a loser leaves the NWA match. It was booked by Jim Crockett. He wanted to get rid... Cornette said he wanted to get rid of Randy Rose, but I assume he wanted to get rid of Dennis Condry. I mean, it doesn't make any sense for it to be Randy Rose, because if that is what they wanted to do, they could have just done it here. Like they, they, And they don't do it. 
Yeah, but wait, it was booked by Jim Crockett, who was the interim booker before they hired George. Like, that's how disjointed this is. Dusty started this. Dusty got fired. Jim Crockett booked for a little while, for like a month, a month and a half. And then they brought in George Scott. So George Scott is finishing the story. George Scott doesn't like the Midnight Express, doesn't like Heard. Um, Cornette, Eaton, and Lane are each making $225,000 at this point. Which is a shitload. That means their act is $750,000. Yeah, they're making more than Ric Flair, which is absurd. I don't care what anyone says. You can't be paying them more than Ric Flair. This is why Vince McMahon hates tag teams. It's too damn expensive. Also, to pay the manager as much as the wrestlers is insane. I mean, realistically, though, like, the manager in this case, like, without Cornette, the Midnight Express is nothing. Like, in fact, I would pay Cornette that and them less because you could just replace them with another team and it would probably still work because of Cornette. So, Condry didn't show up here. He quit. And so they substitute in Jack Victory. I mean, this this whole thing, this feud had already not been as hot as it was supposed to be in here. It just... Coming to a very weak end in here with, you know, Victory having to sub in. Realistically, though, like, Condry just should have done this job because this is basically the end of his career. Yeah, he never works <laughs> again anyway. Um, so early in the match, Heyman accidentally punches Rose, which is going to lead to them splitting after this, even though Randy Rose is supposed to have to retire because they lose. Ah, good stuff. Uh, Rose throws Lane off the apron into the railing, and that gives the heel team the advantage. At some point, Cornette gets in the ring, and he gets beat up, but Eaton breaks that up. Cornette tags in Lane. Lane gets distracted by Paulie and cut off. Um, Lane gets his boots up on a corner charge. He tags in Eaton. Eaton hits a top rope missile drop kick. He gets dangerously in the ring and tags in Cornette. Cornette goes ape shit on dangerously. This was shockingly good. This is Cornette for all of his like complete not lack of working ability. Like Despite being lack- the least athletic person I've ever seen. But he's so compelling yeah. when he just fucking loses it. <laughs> you got, you know, you've seen this. The nerdy kid at school who gets pushed just a little too far and flips out. Yep. Um Lane and Rose tag in. Rose misses a splash from the top. Victory breaks up the pin. Flapjack on Rose gets the one, two, three. The Midnight Express survive. Randy Rose is banned from the NWA, but he comes back a few weeks later. Before we finish with this match, do you want to give a a quick word about what Jim Cornette is wearing here? He's got this, like, full-body singlet and underwear on the outside. Like, this looks for all the world. I guarantee you he put on the tights and then saw what he looked like in it and was like, nope, cover this shit up. We're not yeah, doing like, it. He doesn't work out. Dude, the, I don't even think most of these wrestlers worked out back then. No, for the most part, it was just what you did in the ring was the workout. And then I, chokes. Say, I think I'm in better shape than half these guys. Ooh, second secret game underneath the first game. <laughs> Which wrestlers of these is Steve in better shape than? Definitely the Russian assassin. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, look, Michael Hayes doesn't strike me as a guy who like worked out. I mean, obviously they act, they work out in the sense that wrestling is very physically arduous, but like, I don't know how many of these guys actually went to the gym and this is still like, I feel like this is still the point where a lot of people are like skeptical of weightlifting. Yeah, literally like that is interesting because I think that you're absolutely right about that. Like, there's that famous story that Triple H tells that like Ron Simmons has never lifted a weight since he left Florida He's, State University. Like he yes. literally just looks like that. I know. Like trying to wrap my head around how some guys look like that without working out is nuts. I mean, it just reminds you that some of the top athletes in the world are really just genetic marbles who like to some extent would always just be that way. Obviously they've been honed in various ways, but some, especially when you're wrestling all the time, it's not like you're losing your figure, right? Whatever no. figure you got, you're doing enough cardio that it's going to stay oh, that way. Yeah. I mean, Flair's talked about how he'd wrestle Steamboat for an hour and then he'd eat like 24 chicken nuggets and drink 12 Miller Lights in the car and he'd still lose weight. Yeah, just rippling abs. <laughs> yeah. Um. Great match, great stuff, including from the managers. Obviously, Cornette is the biggest Meltzer stooge there's ever been. I think Heyman is too, though. I, I they raced, like yeah. they both like went over and like chatted with him at ringside after the match. Had <laughs> an audience with him, like it was the Pope. Like, and especially in this match, because they both had dirt about like the Condry situation. Oh, they raced to tell him that dirt. Oh, Coddle interviews Flair, who does a like a fine promo. I found Flair's promos in this Steamboat program. It felt like he was kind of on autopilot. Yeah, this is the most basic, basic shit. Yeah. Uh, next up for the TV title, we've got Rick Steiner defending against Mike Rotunda. Do you remember the ludicrous pop Steiner got at Starcade when he beat Rotunda? Yep. Man, he's lost all that steam in two months here. It's just like Eugene. Well, again, it's difficult to remind people that that is the character that he was playing. And, like, that character, whether it was Evad Sullivan or Eugene or, like, Norman the Lunatic, it always gets over for a bit, and Uh, then people are done with it. I just, like, yeah, they're literally portraying him as if he's, you know, developmentally disabled. It's really weird. I don't know, man. Um, uh, so they're both amateur wrestlers. You know, Steiner wrestled at Michigan. Rotunda wrestled at Syracuse. JR also says Rotunda was a defensive tackle for the Syracuse football team, which I didn't know. I knew that he played football at Syracuse, didn't know he was a defensive tackle, and of yep. course Syracuse uh, has a shitty football team. But they hey, were it's good t- back in the 80s. Were they really? Yeah, they were good back then under Paul McPherson. Well, I'll be damned. Yeah. Um, of course, his son, Bray Wyatt, was a college football player. Of course, naturally. Um. Scott Steiner makes his, you know, NWA debut in Rick's corner here. This is so similar to when at the first Ring of Honor show, like Mark Briscoe is with Jay Briscoe because he literally was too young to legally perform in the state of Pennsylvania at the time. And like Scott Steiner looks like he's five years old here. (laughs) 
Yeah. A jacked five-year-old. But Super five. jacked. Yeah, he's got to be very young. Like, he's, like, probably fresh out of college. Um, sadly, I don't feel like the University of Michigan has ever brought the Steiners back for anything. It is interesting that they, like, they had to have been, at one point, some of the most famous alums of that university. And they really never did anything with them ever again. Oh, speaking of the University of Michigan, you know who was in the crowd tonight? Who? Jim Harbaugh. No shit, really? Quarterback for the Bears at the time. He's a big wrestling fan. I did love, as a Bears fan, seeing, like, just random old bit. It was really, like, one of those games of, like, name that old, yeah. like, football players. Like, oh, hey, here's some cast-offs from the late 80s Bears teams. Uh, no varsity club guys back in Rotunda. I don't know what's going on there. I mean, they are a little bit busy with having to face the most horrifyingly dangerous tag team imaginable later. So maybe they're just psyching themselves up for that. Sure. Um, you know, first couple minutes, they're wrestling around on the mat. Rotunda goes to the skies and hits a pretty nice cross body, but Steiner rolls through it for a two count. Rotunda put on his working shoes for this one, actually. I... I like this version of Mike Rotunda. I feel like I've said it before. I like Varsity Club Rotunda. This works. He's one of those guys who I just think couldn't translate his style to the WWF. He just wasn't charismatic enough. But like this, where he's basically just like, I'm a better athlete than yeah. you, and I'm big, and I'm naturally gifted, and I'm a dickhead. He's like, just that's a wrestler's fine. wrestler, and like the TV title is the right level for him. And I love the idea is like, Nobody could beat him in less than 20 minutes because he's so well conditioned, so technically sound. You're never going to beat him within the time limit. So getting the TV title from him is impossible. That's basically what they're doing with Zack Sabre Jr. in New Japan right now. We're like, he's the most technically gifted guy in the world. You, you're never going to beat him in 15. It's just yeah. So he's going to hold that belt for the rest of his life. Steiner goes up to the top. He misses a splash. Steiner hits a big power slam, but he fails to make the cover right away. And JR all but calls him an idiot. Yep. <laughs> uh, Kevin Sullivan appears. He gets on the mic. He says Steiner's got a nice dog back in the dressing room. And he heads backstage to kidnap Steiner's dog. So, like, I understand that he's the dog-faced gremlin and whatever. But, like... They hadn't really established that he brought, like, his dog to the arena, right? I think they had—I think he'd been bringing his dog to TV before. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Also, uh, why didn't someone in AEW cut this promo on CM Punk at any point? Oh, my God. That's a nice dog you got back <gasps> there, buddy. You better not touch Larry the dog. Because, like, you would threaten anything about Bastard. CM Bastard! Oh, you threaten his the, wife before his dog. Oh, yeah, if you went for the dog, he would murder you in cold blood. Uh, the ring announcer calls 15 minutes gone, five minutes left in the time limit as Steiner locks on a sleeper hold. Does AEW still call the time gone by or did they stop doing that? I actually don't know. I can't think. stopped and I, God, I love that. Every single promotion that still does that, like it's measurably better. Because it just gives you the sense of like, because you can forget that a match has been going for 15 minutes, but the second you hear that, you're like, oh shit, we got to be coming to the finish. Going, or yeah, you're like, oh, they're going. To the, and then if it goes over 30, like I can't believe how long these guys are going. This is incredible. Right. And it adds actual drama to the time limit. Yes. 
Yeah, like drives me crazy when they do the time limit draws and they don't count the time limit down. Because then it just feels like a bullshit finish. Yeah. Like, oh, just okay. came out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, Steiner puts Rotunda in a sleeper hold, but he pins himself because he puts his shoulders down on the mat and Rotunda's on top of him and he gets counted out. Because he's an idiot. <laughs> yeah. Rotunda wins the title. Yep. Goodbye, Rick Steiner singles push. So real quick, before we get past this match, um, I got to tell you that it's time for Stump Steve. Oh, no. Micro <laughs> triggered Stump Steve. <laughs> Indeed it did. So to, a quick thing about Stump Steve. So it must be obvious to all of you out there that I have not been very well keeping track of the <laughs> win-loss record because I have no fucking not idea. Good. So I want to make a small alteration to that. So I have also been hearing from people out there that I – there are people who believe that I've been taking it too easy on you slash have been rigging it so that you can win. Not a lot oh, of people, but I just want to say so from now on, they're going to be slightly more difficult questions. And there's going to be a new thing in play where for each one of these that you beat me with, you're going to successfully get ten dollars personally from me. <laughs> so okay. there's some real stakes on the line. This could add up quickly. All right. All right. So during this match, uh, Mike Rotunda is referred to by Jim Co- by Jim Ross as the greatest television champion that there has been. Oh. Mike Rotunda also refers to him that way in the promo that he cuts later. But that's bullshit because he only had three reigns for 433 days. And there are four men who had more combined days as television champion than him. Okay. Well, we will take out Lord Steven Regal because that happens later. Okay. He's number four. We will take out Paul Jones because that's before the televised era. Oh my he God. had 679. So number one and number two of the longest combined days television champions in WCW slash NWA history. Let me hear him. Arn Anderson. Number one. Four okay. combined reigns, 877 days. Wow. That is the guy I think of when I think of this title. Yep. Especially this version of the title with, like, the red, um, you know, the silver with the red, whatever, red banner. Now, most of his reigns did come later. Like, they came after this, actually. Yeah, he had a really long reign in, like, 89-90, I think. So, technically, Mike Rotunda could have been called the greatest TV champion ever, except for this man, the one that you're missing, who held these reigns before this. Um... Magnum TA. Good guess. Uh, Magnum TA is pretty far down the list. Okay. Is it Tully? It's Tully. God damn it. See, I thought you were going to get Tully. I wasn't sure if you were going to get Arn, but I should have thought that like early 90s WCW would have been your wheelhouse. Yeah. You know, the little Arn. The little Arn Mark in me remembers how long he was the TV champion. There's a good chance you were going to get Regal, too. There was no chance you were going to get Paul Jones. And, like, we got to make this somewhat fun, ladies and gentlemen. I can't just ask him, like, all right, well, who beat Luthez on April 13th, yeah, that's 1963? Not tri- that's not <laughs> trivia. Like, it has, to be, it, has to be, it has to be plausible that somebody would know it. Okay. So that is now $10 I owe Steve. We're going to defer that payment and see just how much he can win over the next few months. And the <laughs> next time I see you, I will pay you that in cash in person, and we will put that on Twitter so you guys know that it's real. 
We go back to oh, who stooged to Meltzer here? I don't know if either of these guys did. I don't. The Steiners definitely are not stooges. They yeah. don't give a shit. Uh, no. Probably Rotunda, maybe. I don't know that Rotunda cares, and I definitely don't think that he was a favorite of Meltzer's. It no. may be no one here. Yeah, this might be nobody. Uh, we go backstage to the Road Warriors and Paul Ellerang. They don't have a ton to say. And they never have, and they never will. <laughs> Next up, U.S. title match. We got Barry Windham against Lex Luger. Um, Luger wants to get another shot at Flair, so his plan is to beat Windham for the U.S. title, and then he'll be the number one contender for the world title. I gotta tell you, like, on paper, this does not seem like an exciting match. Like, I don't Barry want... Wyndham's so good, though. Barry Windham's so good, but, like, at this point, he's so stale. He had, like, infinite matches with Flair where he never actually beat him, and now he's just kind of there. Whereas Luger's coming off of that lame duck starcade where, like, no one gave a shit about him. So these both seem like guys just kind of floating. But this, this is they, good. They worked their asses off here. Luger oh, yeah. hit an incredible press slam on Wyndham a couple minutes into this. Barry Wyndham is a huge dude. He's got to be 6'6", 250 plus. It's weird that we don't think of him that way. Like, he yeah. and JBL are both kind of the exact same size. And, like, they're both guys that you don't think of as being giants. And then you'll see him in there with small guys and be like, what the fuck? Yeah, Barry Windham wrestled The Undertaker on an episode of Raw in 1998. And he was not that much short. Yeah, he was pretty much eye to eye with The Undertaker. Um, Luger misses a shoulder tackle and he crashes out to the floor, which thankfully has padding on it. Um, On the floor, Windham like winds up to throw a big punch at Luger, Luger ducks and Wyndham punches the turn, punches the ring post, breaks his hand. Yep. Which I'll have a whole item next week, but I didn't realize the Barry Wyndham hand thing is apparently a real injury. I always just thought it was a gimmick, but apparently he did have a hand problem that was recurrent. That's interesting because that becomes like the only thing he has in terms of a character for a while after this. So, I mean, I guess it's good that he got hurt. Wyndham sets up the superplex, which I believe is his finisher, and he hits it, but Luger still kicks out at two. Wyndham hits a back suplex and bridges into a pin. That's the one, two, three, but the referee says Luger got his shoulders up and Wyndham's shoulders were down. So Luger is declared the winner. I can't believe... They did two consecutive finishes where the guy pinned himself. And the next match is going to have a shit confusing finish, too. So basically, that's three title matches in a row where it's decided in like a kind of fluky bullshit way that the live fans couldn't possibly have understood. It's just bad booking. And it feels like George Scott, just with his old school booking mentality, doesn't want to give finishes away even on pay-per-view. It's pay-per-view. They paid for the finish. They paid for this. Way more people than go to your house shows. That's a, that's literally what pay-per-view should be called. Paper finish. Like, you are yeah. literally paying to see definitive finishes to feuds and matches. Uh, Wyndham beats up Luger, pile drives him on the belt after the match. This is going to be it for Wyndham this season, actually. He's out of here after this. He ends up going to the WWF to be the Widowmaker. I bet you he wishes he had that one back. Yeah, and then I think he went to jail for counterfeiting. Bet you he wishes he had that one back. That one, yeah. 
Uh, Coddle interviews Rotunda, who, you know, is very excited that he won back the title and is the greatest television champion in history. This is a pretty decent promo by Rotunda. It's not charismatic in any way, but it's just kind of like, I'm the greatest television champion in history. Rick Steiner's a dumb fuck who stole this belt from me. This is my belt. But he's just like high school athlete bully, and I he should have leaned into that. That's exactly what this character should be. Next up, tag title match. We've got the Road Warriors against the Varsity Club. Uh, the Road Warriors have been heels in the months leading up to this, but you know they've turned to back face here because nobody boos the Road Warriors. It just doesn't work as a heel act. It's just funny to think that like a month before this, they're getting themselves intentionally disqualified, and they're like di- they're like, they're almost becoming like chicken shit heels. And then here they are again as, like, the world-conquering road warrior baby faces. They're, of course, insanely over in Chicago. Meltzer said they got a bigger pop than Hogan. I mean, I'm not surprised. Like, the road warriors in Chicago is the funniest thing. Because it seems like neither WWE nor WCW could ever put together a match that was really worthy of them in that city. Oh, you didn't think the uh, six-man tag with Ahmed Johnson at WrestleMania was worthy of that? I mean, what Sonny was wearing was, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Um, and here they've come up with just a dynamite team for them to face in Kevin Sullivan and Steve Williams. Yeah. Dan Spivey's in the varsity club, too, but he's not wrestling in this match. Dan Spivey and Steve Williams is a threatening team. They could I whoop some ass. Terrified to fight either of those men. Every moment of this match that the Road Warriors spend genuinely selling for Kevin Sullivan is it is, is an indictment of the universe. Kevin Sullivan is a manager. Like, he's like, so little. You can say all you want that in high school he wrestled on three different weight classes and won championships and blah 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 blah. This man is five foot four and pudgy. <laughs> Just, he should. He cannot be fighting road warrior animal. No, and I guess I can sort of get the gimmick of it's kind of like the idea of him like as the taskmaster having these like stud athletes under his control is kind of interesting, but it's still weird that he's like the satanic dude with a bunch of guys in singlets wrestling for him. He has not changed at all. They've just put him in this weird gimmick. There's nothing about the Varsity Club that would not be fixed by making Paul Heyman the manager of it. Oh, my God. The he Heyman could get with these guys. Heyman and Steve Williams together is a main event world championship. Heyman in a sweatshirt with, like, a whistle and a clipboard sounds hilarious. Just doing, like, the Bill Alfonso constant whistle blow. Coach Paul Heyman. God, what a scumbag. Guy who's clearly never worked out in his entire life. Um, Williams faces off both Hawk and Animal, and he gets knocked around. He does manage to hit a press slam, but he misses a senton, and then he takes the what? Double clothesline. Yeah, he does. Love that MJF has gotten the double clothesline over. (laughs) A brawl breaks out. Sullivan hits Animal with a chair on the floor. Uh, Sullivan and Williams manage to isolate Animal in the ring. Then stereo clotheslines take down Animal and Williams. They both tag. 
Hawk comes in, clothesline Sullivan, a lot of clotheslines in this match. Yep. Um, Hawk hits a flying clothesline on Sullivan, and the Warriors get the pin to retain. It was fine. They cut. They had to. They, I'm sure this got its time cut. This was only a couple minutes. Yeah, every match from the Luger match on clearly has had like five minutes cut from it. Yeah, because I mean, you look at the times. The opener went 16 minutes. The second match went 20. The tag match went 16. I can believe the tag match had 15 allotted to it. And maybe the TV title was supposed to go 15, but those first two matches have to have gone way over. The idea that on a show where you had Steamboat versus Flair, that it got its time cut for yeah. Michael Hayes versus Russian Assassin 1 is insulting to the world. Yeah, I mean, Steamboat and Flair only get 23 minutes. They barely get more time than Sting and Butch Reed. Yep. This gotta be. This is like the shortest Flair pay-per-view match. I can't say ever, but like a big Ric Flair match always goes 30 minutes. Yep. Uh, go backstage to Cottle and Luger. Have a little trouble here in Luger at first, but then he talks about his injuries and how it's all worth it now that he's the champion. This was actually a pretty good babyface promo from Luger. I'm surprised. I lo- This is maybe the best promo of his entire career. Like literally, he's just he's humble and is like. Man, I'm I'm so messed up. Like uh, my I'm my back's jacked up and my neck's fucked and I got stitches in my head and he broke his wrist and he's a hell of a fighter. But man, I'm just glad I won the belt for the fans who have supported me and they believe in me and this is just a, a great moment. He's like stoic but heroic. Like this is this is the Lex Luger that they were trying to claw out of him with both hands and they finally got it and it's too late. The fans don't like him anymore. Oh, we forgot to do who stooge to Meltzer. Um, oh, in this match? Sullivan. Sullivan, Williams, Ellering. <laughs> I don't know if Williams does, but JR definitely does. Yeah, on JR on Williams' behalf, absolutely, yeah. yes. Um, and then Wyndham and Luger, Luger definitely doesn't strike me as a Meltzer guy. How far into Luger's career do you think he went before he even heard about oh, Dave he Meltzer? he didn't even know what a dirt sheet was. Yeah. He watched that promo that Hogan cut about the dirt <laughs> sheet brother. He's like, what's that? Well, <laughs> he's burn a magazine. What's he doing? This is what they call a rag sheet brother. That is the greatest promo in wrestling history. <laughs> Tune into our Patreon sometime in November and we'll definitely do uh, world war three. Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, we go to JR and Magnum. They talk about the main event they throw to a video of the match where Steamboat returned, and then they show Steamboat ripping Flair's clothes off at the Clash. I do wish they had shown some footage of their matches from, like, back in the day to talk about, like, how long these guys have been going at it. But I just, I don't know what if they had the archiving system that they could just, like, find the tapes or if they right. even save the tapes. It's a good question. Yeah. Um, actually, I know how much they didn't care about this. Cornette said when, like, Crockett was going bankrupt, he just found a bunch of, like, posters and, like, tapes of old shows just, like, sitting outside on the curb. Like, they were going to throw them away, and he just took them all home. 
What a fucking find for Jim Cornette. Yeah. Like, got a bunch of the old Greensboro, like, shows that had never been on TV that they filmed. Like, that's actually real. I bet he sold some of that back to the WWF. Because I had to some of the, yeah. Yeah, like, some of these Steamboat, I think they put some of those Steamboat Flare matches on the DVDs. That's just so funny to think, because technically that means that like a big part of like that tape library just owns belongs to jim Cornette just because he found it like that's yeah. that's it's weird how ownership would really work in that case though right Cornette, i think own like he has he doesn't own it but he has a bunch of the best memphis tapes either because he got the original like he may have just been given the originals or he ta- or it's just like his home videotapes he made. But it's like he doesn't own the footage. He just has it. And he's right. got some of the best quality stuff, but he can't sell it because he you know, like the Memphis rights I think are super messy between like the Jared estate, Lawler, and all their divorces. Yep. Yeah. So like like a lot of it it's like up in the air if anybody really owns it. But like Cornette has a bunch of the best quality stuff. It's just kinda like he doesn't really own the rights to it. What a fascinating treasure trove of wrestling he has. Like when oh he God. dies, if like the any museum, of, if his his shit should become a museum, like it yeah. just it would make the most. <laughs> Literally, sense. the Cornette Estate, Mama Cornette's house. That J- <laughs> I don't I don't think he actually lives in Mama Cornette's house. But do you remember that promo yes. where Cornette asks JYD where he's been, and he says an address, and it turns out it's Mama Cornette's house, which is fantastic because he just like freestyles <laughs> an address and just like wait a minute. Wait, that's my mama's house. <laughs> Don't you be talking about Mama Cornette. I just love the idea that, like, yeah, JYD does, in fact, know the address of his mom's house. He probably has been banging her. Oh, it's probably been there. I don't know. Maybe I can believe Mama Cornette, like, had all the guys over and cooked him dinner. <laughs> oh, man. Um, all right, main event time. For the NWA world title. Ric Flair defends against Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Um... Buckle in. One of the greatest matches in pro wrestling history. Um, Steamboat's entrance either didn't make air or they clipped it from the version that's on Peacock. Which is a shame. I don't know who owns that song. Uh, It's the Alan Parsons Project. Right. So in all likelihood, they weren't going to pay the rights on that. But like... you know exactly how good of an entrance this was, because if you watch the Chicago Bulls introductions at any point during the 90s, it's the same fucking song. Had they started using Serious. No, yet? no I think not. they were using Thriller. I don't remember yes. when they started doing Serious. I don't know exactly when, but no, Ricky Steamboat had it. What if this is where the idea came from? Because they're in Chicago. Holy shit. This might have been. You could, you could no. believe you somebody think? from like the Bulls marketing department was there and was like, hey, it would be cool if we used this. This is a really epic entrance song. We should start doing that. Because that's the, the Bulls' introductions to series is still, I can't think of another introduction thing a team has ever done in any other context that was notable, even. Yeah, so. like, and me, not even a Chicago Bulls fan, I swear I can do, like, the entire Chicago Bulls entrance with the chords from Sirius. At center, yeah, Luke Longley, <laughs> the man in the middle, yeah, absolutely. <sighs> Flair has many, many women with him, like only six. In Nashville, he's gonna have like twenty. I just love the idea that it just keeps increasing. <laughs> <He's doing more. laughs> yeah, he's just the Godfather with his hose at this point. <laughs> 
<laughs> He's also got Matsuda with him. <laughs> Just another hoe. <laughs> All right. 60 minutes, one fall to a finish. JR says there have been two NWA title changes in Chicago. Buddy Rogers beat Luthez and Flair beat Ron Garvin at Starcade 87. Could this be number three? It's only going to take one fall to do it, but these guys could easily go 60 minutes. They've done it many times before. And you might want to argue, they definitely should have gone 60 minutes in this first match, right? I think I would have gone 60 straight through. The, the only thing, it's interesting, this match feels like they are personal, like repudiating Dusty's booking. That's a good they point. Because te- they tease the Dusty finish. And it feels like they're having to show their fans, like, no, we're going to make good. It's not going to be the old bullshit. Because they do, like, two or three spots down the stretch here where I think every smart fan goes, oh, there's the Dusty finish. They're going right. to overturn this. And to their credit, they don't. No. Like, they, they, they do it for real. But I still think I would have gone say I still think I would have gone sixty straight through this first time. Oh, absolutely. And then if like you need to like Steamboat can have to put something else on the line like his career or whatever yeah. to get the rematch, and then then you have some heat and some stakes. Yeah, I think sixty and like Steamboat has Flair in the figure four, and Flair quits like right after the bow. Yeah, yeah. Steamboat had him. If it had gone 10 seconds longer, he would have won, but Flair retains. And, like, Magnum and everybody are up in arms, like, God damn it, we can't have five more minutes, but Flair's already running back to the locker room. Yeah. And then you can go 60 again at the Clash of the Champions. And then in Nashville, you do 60-minute time limit, but we've got the judges this time, and the judges can make the decision if they go 60 minutes. And in Nashville, Flair beats them. And you have it be like Steamboat puts his career on the line to get that match or some crap like that. Like, because like you don't really think Steamboat's going to win, but if you do that, then maybe he actually is going to win. And then maybe people actually buy that fucking (laughs) pay-per-view. First half of the match, they're just kind of feeling each other out for 10 minutes. A lot of takedowns, lots of headlocks, lots of, lots of pin attempts, you know, very even match. Have you ever seen the Twitter account that'll do like uh, like UFC breakdowns of classic matches? Yes. Like, yeah, I love that. Each guy had this many strikes, this many knockdowns, etc. The one for this one, it was literally like Steamboat had 51% of the offense, Flair had 49 it's so perfect. Also, if you did like a tale of the tape about like these men and like their heights and weights and yeah. backgrounds and athletic jeep, like almost mirror images, they are the same. This is yeah. a perfect matchup of two men. Yeah, both amateur wrestling champions in high school, both trained by Vern Gagne. You know, Steamboat's done it all except he's never been the world champion. He's been the United States champion. He's been the Intercontinental champion. Never won the big one. Steamboat is Flair if he never lost his soul, but Flair Steamboat if he had the killer instinct to actually win the bell. Yeah. Um, there was an audible Steamboat Sucks chant early in the match. Ooh, there sure was. Yeah, it eventually got drowned out by cheers for him. Although Meltzer would say, and I think he's kind of right, that this was the crowd almost cheered for this in like the way a Japanese crowd tended to cheer yes. for a match, that they were more just like cheering the action more than cheering for Steamboat or against Flair. 
because they love flair and they're ambivalent towards steamboat so really they they really are just they get caught up in the match but i don't think they give a shit who wins i think they're just so impressed with what they're seeing here because the athleticism i just you know if you did this match today it wouldn't stand out that much but this is so compared to the level of wrestling people were used to seeing in 1989 this is just worlds beyond it this is so much better than the only match i think you'd see in the wbf that would compare to this was steamboat and savage and this is better yeah this is why this match and steamboat savage resonates so much obviously when you watch them now they're very good but like they don't stand out the way they do now but you just have to put in your head it's not just what else is going on at the same time up and down this card there's nothing even remotely as good as this But think about, you could be a 60-year-old wrestling fan. Watch this match. You've never seen a match like this before in your entire fucking life. Yeah. Like, the idea of a match being this smooth and this good and this crisp and this perfect, it's never existed before. It's like the first time you ever saw, like, a TLC match, and you're like, this is just, there's no precedent for this. About 10 minutes in, they go to the floor, Flair slams Steamboat into the railing, and from here on, this match is absolute fire. Like, what I love especially about this match is that they keep doing this thing where, like, Flair will do his usual stuff where he, like, goes into his heat segments, and Steamboat will immediately come back. Like, Flair will be like, chop, chop, going for my stuff, and Steamboat will, like, chop him right back and just be like, no, motherfucker, no heat segment for you. Flair does the spot where he you know, flips over the top rope and he runs over to the other side and he actually hits the crossbody for once. God, like every this whole match is just like playing with people's expectations of Ric Flair matches and just like yeah. doing the other thing. But Steamboat rolls through it into a small package like Steamboat. Let him do it so, so we could sucker him in. Yeah, he knew. He's like, Flair's never hit this thing before. He's not going to know what to do if he actually hits it. He's going to be so excited he won't even (laughs) notice if I try to roll him up. Of course he's hit it before. He pinned Harley Race with it at the first Starcade. But canonically, he's never, ever (laughs) hit it before. Uh, Flair hooks the legs and turns it into the figure four. That was awesome. This whole match is just, it's essentially contested between two people who do not have finishers. Like this Flair's is never beat anybody with the figure four. No, it's it's the figure four versus the small package. Like and like they are both perfect counters into each other. As Flair would say, he only won 16 matches in his whole career. They all just happened to be for the world title. I other mean, than that, he, other than that, he never won any matches and never with the figure four. He's right. <laughs> <laughs> um. Flair hits Steve. This was a really cool spot. Flair charges Steamboat, hits him with a cross body, and they both go over the top. I don't, that might have been the first time anybody had done that in a wrestling match. I think so. It gets like a shocked reaction from the crowd. They're like, that, whoa, fuck. Bump. Like, I'd be scared to do that. Um, they go back in the ring. Flair hits a series of big moves. He keeps getting two counts. Flair gets distracted by the crowd, and Steamboat gets him with Schoolboy for a close two count. They do the bridge spot. Steamboat gets Flair with the double arm suplex, but Flair manages to get a foot on the ropes. Um, Steamboat gets Flair with the backslide, but he only gets two. Thought that was going to be the finish. Me too. 
Uh, Steamboat goes to the top. He hits the big chop, but he doesn't cover. He goes back to the top. He hits the crossbody, but in the process, they knock down the referee, Tommy Young. So there's no one to make the count. Steamboat's going to get screwed again. You can just feel it now. Got it. And it's so miserable. Like, well, it's just because I don't if you had to really guess how people felt going into this match. I don't think anybody reasonably expected Steamboat to win. Like, I don't even know why you would imagine that that would happen. No, because they always do the chase. Like, the babyface never wins the first time. Dusty had to fight Flair 50 times before he finally won the title from him. And that's probably part of the reason why the show did so poorly, is people were like, I'll save my money and buy the next one where they might actually do the title change. Then Flair rolls up Steamboat, and he's got him pinned, but again, there's no one there to count. Teddy Long runs in as the replacement referee. Steamboat goes back to the top. He goes for the crossbody. Flair ducks it. He goes to put him in the figure four. Steamboat rolls him over, gets him in the small package. Long slides in, counts one, two, three. The crowd explodes. Steamboat did it. Steamboat's the champion. There's like a delay between Long's hand hitting the third time and the crowd responding, because I genuinely think that they expected a kick out so strongly that they were like, wait, really? Yeah. Do you ever do the thing where like your brain makes somebody kick out just because you can't believe that was the finish? All the time. Yes. Yeah. I think that was with the crowd, everybody here. Like, I'm sure Flair was wiggling and all. Like, in reality, I feel like many times guys' shoulders actually come off the mat during a pin, and that may have happened here. But now, like, Steamboat got him. One, two, three. Also, there are some referees who, like, are especially good at, like, Earl Hebner might be the goat at this. We're like, you're never in any doubt about whether he counted three or not because he has yes. such like a gigantic wind up and he hits the mat so fucking hard. And if he doesn't do it, he throws his whole body at the canvas. Yeah. Like, no, said, no, two. Like here, Teddy Long's just like one, two, three. <laughs> so with all the shenanigans that happened there, the ref bump, the second referee, I think everybody's expecting this decision to get overturned, but it stands. The funny part was, like, normally what you'd see is that, like, oh, Ric Flair fucked him again, and then he sprints back to the locker room so that it can't be overturned. In this case, Steamboat gets handed the belt and immediately goes back to the locker room so it can't be overturned. (laughs) Get out of there. Get on the bus. Get out of town. Your baby (laughs) face who won a belt, you better get the fuck out of here before Dusty finds out. Don't stop till you cross the state line. (laughs) Stop stop to use the bathroom in Indiana. Then we get one of the funniest post-show things I've ever seen. Where Ricky Steamboat is trying so hard to cut his promo, and all the baby faces come in and are spraying champagne directly into his eye sockets. That shit burns. It's so (laughs) acidic. Also, his chest is all chopped to hell, so I bet it burned his chest, too. It's just so funny to see him trying so hard yeah. to cut this promo, and literally they like, walking up to him and spraying him right in the eye. They know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, they're ribbing him here. Yeah, he's he's not crying. Well, he's crying because his eyes are burning. But yeah, he's trying to get words out, he's struggling because it hurts so much. And, like, a minute goes by, and then finally someone hands him a towel. <laughs> Oh, yeah. That's why when you see them do like the locker room champagne celebration now, they wear goggles. Yeah. 
Because, yeah, uh, that shit burns. Uh, Steamboat promises Flair rematch. She says he'll give it to him as soon as they can get it scheduled. This, but I will say, aside from the fact that he was getting champagne spray in his eyes, this is a shitty promo by him at the end. Again, he is not world champion material. It's just, I'm sorry. He's such a great worker, but it's just like, it's promos that draw the money. It's the issues that draw the money. And he's just, he's never going to be a guy who can talk people into the building. He was the perfect workhorse intercontinental champion. I just kind of feel like that was probably his best level. Even while he's being, he's just won the world title, the culmination of all of his work. And his friends are all spraying champagne directly into his eye sockets. He shows not one shred of emotion in any direction at all. Like, he's just not capable of it. We go back to JR and Magnum. Did you notice there was a match going on in the ring behind them? Was there really? Yeah. They put another match on. It's like Steve Casey against somebody, and it went like 25 minutes. What? I think think it's possible they put him out there and everybody just forgot about it. (laughs) Everyone's going home and they're just wrestling. Meltzer said by the end of the match there was like 400 people left in the arena. Everybody just went home after Flair's steamboat. Why the fuck would you put another match in there? I have no idea. And, like, not even a good one. That is bizarre. (laughs) I love the idea that these guys are wrestling. Like, the lights go out. (laughs) Like, everybody's gone. Hey, guys. uh... Everybody just forgot to tell them. Everybody just forgot. Like, they sent them out there. Like, oh, yeah, we'll just wrestle until we tell you to quit. And then everybody went home. The the ring crew starts taking apart the ring while they're still doing bumps in there. Um, Oh, Flair. Massive Meltzer stooge. Oh, the biggest. Probably the historically, all-time. other than Cornette, he's the... Because Meltzer's a mark for Flair. So yeah. even if he hadn't been getting stooge to, he still would have like put him over. I kind of feel yeah. like Steamboat's like a dark horse Meltzer stooge too. I think he is. Flair actually said him and Steamboat like went out with Meltzer after the show. Well, okay. Let's just be clear about this, too, because I'm sure Meltzer was a big fan of theirs, put them over all the time. They appreciated that. Oh, that's great. They I, I want to I'm going to bet you that they understand that, like, the key to this feud is to get it over in the dirt sheets. The amazing match that they just had. Yeah. You got to see the next one. Oh, my God. This was life changing. <laughs> yeah. See, it's interesting because historically, I would say great matches don't draw money. Today, in the modern day, great matches do draw money because, as Meltzer has pointed out, AEW actually does a significant amount of their buys after the pay-per-view has happened. Yes. Like, something like 20% of it. For some of their shows, they've done, like, 20% of their buy rate after the show because people heard about how good the show was and were like, oh, shit, I do need to buy that. Yeah, a lot of people just wait, and they're just like, oh, shit, it was good? Cool, I'll buy it then. Yeah, like and that makes total sense. It started with uh, the Danielson MJF match. Like that was the first show that I remember it being reported. Like, yeah, this show drew it. Like, I think everybody thought it was an error at first that they were reporting it wrong. They were like, yeah, the show drew something like 15 percent of its buys like at, on replays. And then like it's like it continued with Forbidden Door. But then it's like it stopped with one of the shows. So like but yeah, like. 
today for maybe the first time ever, like truly like match quality does draw now in the sense that like there's a decent chunk of fans now who will buy a show if they hear that it had an incredible match on it. But I will argue that great matches always drew, but never that night and maybe never even like immediately after. But like, just think about like Flair Steamboat for years after this became like this thing. And if they had been able to put that match in the ring in like 92, I honestly think that it could have drawn because of the history that this match represents. I feel like when they did it in 94, it did pretty decent business. They did it at that spring stampede. Yeah, I'm just saying that like great matches create like this idea in your head like oh my god like those two together we got punk versus joe at wembley yeah. because of a match they had in 2006 yeah, and that was one i was i thought it was remarkable how much people were re- reacting to that yeah i mean a great matches just stick in your mind in that way and then they sell themselves into the future it just it's so rare how often we get back to that let, let me put it to you this way kenny omega and kazuchika okada never had a storyline worth a shit However, if they put that match on anywhere in the universe right now, would you pay for it? Even if it didn't have a storyline? Fuck yeah, you would. Yeah. Um, Man. All right. This show. I'd say pretty... I'd give this a thumbs up. Hey, the main event was incredible, but also, like, after the first two matches, I thought it was a strong show. I'm going to peel back the curtain for you guys. The very first words that Steve said to me when we started this Skype call was, how mad are you at me for making me watch this show? And my response was, I liked this show. Like, it's not good necessarily, but there's just so much here, so much chaos, so much politics, and a main event that's eminently satisfying. That's all I ask from a show, that it be interesting. And this is.